My name is Clancy Emerson. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I really enjoyed your talk, Vinnie. I feel bad because I can't interpret it in Thai, but uh, I'll try for the people here from Norway. <clears throat> Behold a host of people dressed in white like a thousand snow-clad mountains. Translation. Can story be the folk some Tusen Bjergi fooled us may? Three Norwegians said, uh -huh. Uh -huh. But I'm glad to hear this one. This has really been an excellent convention. I really enjoyed this weekend. I've enjoyed uh, from the time I came to the first talk I heard with Mike and all the way through the weekend, meeting a lot of people, old friends, new friends. I'm sure we all have had the same feeling. There's always some a poignant moment at the end of a convention because, you know, it sounds kind of corny to say this, but never again will this particular crowd of people be gathered anywhere in the world. Uh, even next year when this happens, there'll be a few people here who got drunk in the interim. There'll be some people who died. And there'll be people here who we've never heard of yet, but who will become a functioning part of our group. It's always kind of a touching thing. It's a shifting sands always. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about uh, where do we go from here? I travel around AA a lot. The last few years I've been everywhere from Cape Town to Oslo to Stockholm to Bali out around the world, Costa Rica. And in the last three, four years maybe, there's been a little wave of people saying it's time to change AA, to update it, to bring it more modern, to, to put aside our old-fashioned superstitions and really work with it. And it's probably in three major areas. One, and that is one you hear a lot in a lot of meetings, we no longer have to confine ourselves to working with alcoholics. There's so much narcotic use in the world today that narcotics addicts should be allowed to come today and take part in our membership. And they are need a very great deal. The second movement is that the book, although a good book, helped a lot of people, is written kind of an old-fashioned 1930s style. It maybe should be updated, maybe edited a little bit and changed around a little bit. And finally, that anonymity, once upon a time in 1935, was important to protect people, but not anymore. It's, a, it's really a, we are, have nothing to be ashamed of at all. And you hear this again and again. In fact, it comes up in our international meetings that people want to raise these factors. And as long as we're leaving now and going to our various ways, going back to our home groups, I want to talk about them just a little bit because I uh, I seem to have been around longer than anybody else. But at the countdown, I thought they're never going to get to the next guy. Uh, I started to feel, what the hell am I doing here? But uh, why why is this... Uh, why is this big deal about why do you have to be an alcoholic to be an A? Why can't we help people who really need help? And it gets down, it goes back to a very basic tenet. You know, as I mentioned the other night, alcoholics, and alcoholics, there's always been alcoholics of our type. As far back as you remember, there are certain people for whom alcohol seems to have a significantly different effect. And they cannot seem to live without it eventually. And there's been all sorts of treatments. There's been all sorts of uh, effects. But nothing has ever happened. And people like to say, well, maybe it's because Alcoholics Anonymous has a secret formula. But they don't. There's nothing in AA that you don't find in any sorts, all sorts of places. Bill Wilson talked about getting stuff from a, 
Emmett Fox and other philosophies. There's nothing new in A. That's what makes people, what, what is the difference here? And you stop and think, what is the difference? What, what makes AA work when nothing else does? And it gets back to one thing. From the very first start, when Bill Wilson went to talk to Dr. Bob in that room, and Dr. Bob said, that's the first man who ever made me feel that I, he understood why I drank and why I felt that way. And then they went up to the hospital. And Bill D. said, yes, I didn't want to talk to them men, but I, they, they never talked to me about their, my drinking once. They told me about their drinking and how they felt. Because the whole concept here that makes it work is, is one of us, all one thing all of us come here with, whether it's Vinny and all the ties or everybody else, we all come here with a feeling, a secret knowledge that my case is different. You don't really understand. And that baffles people. That's why people die from alcoholism. You can talk to your blue in the face, but information doesn't help alcoholics of our type. It just bounces off. Something more must be. And that has to be some way to get through that wall. And the only way that's ever been found for people like us is, you, is identification. To get through that wall, you can't open it from the outside. It has to be open from the inside. And you just, God, you said something I understand. What? And little by little, this identification is such an important, important thing. Without that, alcoholic anonymous is just more information. There isn't an alcoholic in the world of our type who stayed sober based on information. We've been getting information our whole lives from doctors and ministers and priests and parents and friends and everybody. And yeah, yeah, I know you. I know that you're trying to help me, but you don't understand. And what is the, the whole story of Alcoholics Anonymous, from Bill Wilson to Dr. Bob, down to your sponsor talking to you? is identification. Without that, it's just information. And you look over the years, you know, in the early years of Alcoholics Anonymous, well, not the early years, but the 1950s, for example, when I got sober, the, uh, there's a couple guys in Los Angeles. There's one guy in Los Angeles named Jim Willis. And he was a gambler, bad gambler, as well as an alcoholic. And he would take his gambler friends to AA meetings. They, what's this crap? I don't know what the old juicers are doing. To hell with it. So he finally wrote to New York and said, I've got an idea. I think these guys could be helped by 12 steps, but they don't believe in the 12 steps we got. Could I have your permission to use them and form something called Gamblers Anonymous? And they agreed that he became the first person to ever make uh, a new organization using the 12 steps. And he became the founder of GA, and it took off. It really did very well. In fact, today, he is still the most successful of all the non-AA 12-step programs. And he became very successful. He, I knew him quite well. He's married to a dear friend of mine, and he'd travel around and go to GA meetings. There's his, his picture, like we have a picture of Bill Wilson. There's a picture of Jim Willis. And it really is good. And he got so active in GA, he, didn't, uh, he really didn't have much time for AA anymore. So people were sad when he got drunk and died. But the people in GA said, well, he never gambled again. <laughs> and really, that's the truth. I mean, but he was a, 
And then about a year after he founded GA, two guys in North Hollywood Club, they were kind of, they were alcoholics and addicts. And they'd bring their addict friends to say, hey, oh, what's all this crap about these juicers? We don't care. So they got permission to form Narcotics Anonymous. And then a couple guys in the west side of Alcoa, all these happened in one city in a few years. On the west side of the, the marina, some guys got together, who were cocaine addicts, because they got more modern on cocaine, and they got permission to use Cocaine Anonymous. And then a woman in down mid-Wilshire area who had compulsive eating problems, she got permission to use the steps for uh, Overeaters Anonymous. That's where they all came from. And they were all formed, not because there was anything new in them, but they allowed the listeners to identify with what was going on. And you, know, you see, well, can't you just come here and understand this? I never understood the difference. So when I was about two years sober, I still had no front teeth, but I was on fire in AA. And I was talking to the club one day, and I weighed about 125 pounds. I was scrawny. And I was talking on obsessions. Not to recover from them. I didn't know about that, but I knew about the obsessions. <laughs> and I gave a great talk. I thought, yeah, and then I think I'm crazy. And, <laughs> and this rather plump woman came up after me and she said, I really enjoyed your talk. I've never heard people talk about emotions like that. I started a little organization called Overeaters Anonymous over on Olympic Boulevard. Would you come over Sunday and talk to our, our ladies? I said, sure. <laughs> Give them something to shoot for, baby. <laughs> so I went over there, and there was about 10, eight or 10 kind of punchy ladies sitting around the table, you know. And I gave them a great talk at obsessions. Phil. And I, got, I thought, I really helped these girls. But they sat down in the initial sharing session. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The woman over here, she, her son had just had a 10th birthday. He was going to a military school in Long Beach. She sent her husband down to pick him up about 30 miles away. She got this birthday cake, made sure it tasted good, took a piece, and just one more, and just one more. By the time I got back, the cake was gone. <laughs> and she felt so ashamed. And I didn't say anything because I'm a nice guy. But I thought to myself, Jesus, just have a piece of cake and forget it. What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Woman over here talking about how she loves ice cream. I just love ice cream. My husband gets so mad at me. But I just love it. It makes me feel whole. I just I love I eat it. When he goes to work, I go get some ice cream. I just love it. And I didn't say anything because I'm a nice guy. But I thought to myself, no wonder you're fat, for Christ's sake. You shouldn't. Be. Yeah. The woman over here is my favorite. She ate till she couldn't eat anymore. Then she would put her finger down her throat and vomit it up so she could eat some more. And I didn't say anything. I'm a nice guy. I thought, uh, don't bother shaking hands after the meeting. So I mean, I can see doing that for drinking, but not eating. Yeah. How many times have I come out on a Saturday afternoon the sun's still up? Jesus, I won't make it through the night. <laughs> now, what was the difference? Nothing. I understood exactly what they were saying, but I didn't identify. It was strange behavior.
what they, they all understood each other. But it just un, couldn't, it's not identification. And as a result of that, that's one of the reasons that people like us, you might find a difficulty having your folks, your non-alcoholic family understand. Because they just can't understand it. Can't you just, in a sense, can't you just have a piece of cake and forget it? And they have no idea. And so you, if they don't completely understand it, don't worry about it. Just let them show them that AA works by your behavior. And that by being a, doing a, being a better person and making amends in a living way. So they say, I'm sorry, let's keep treating them like crap. And the, the great gift of Alcoholics Anonymous has always been identification. That is what makes AA work. That's what makes CA work. That's what makes NA work. You know, incidentally, by the way, people wonder why NA has never been successful like the other three programs. It's successful in some places, but it usually isn't. And it's something to do with narcotics addicts, I guess. Because I know several people. I know the founders. And they were always troubled because so many people come in there, heroin addicts, and they, they'd rather be cool than be, get involved, you know. Hey, man, I don't want to hear this shit. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> and they die as a result. They die as a result. Live in agony. That's one of the great things we have to do here is remember to one another instill. You know, around the world in AA, there are things called, I call them pockets of enthusiasm, where there's a group where they're just lively and involved, and you go for hundreds of miles and, I don't know. Then another pocket of enthusiasm. And they're all over at the Omaha, Nebraska ball places. One of their suburbs, a place called, they have a Bellevue group that has more sober variety than the whole state of Nebraska. And they're just lively. And there's all over. I hope that you will have one in Thailand and it'll get to be that way. But there's certain factors that take place in every, you know, one thing about these pockets of enthusiasm as you travel around, they are the few things that give you hope that AA is going to con continue. Because some places it looks like AA is going to die out next week. Just they have no interest in what's going on. But wherever there's a pocket of enthusiasm, you seem to have a, always one thing underlying it. There's always a strong sponsorship ethic. And why would that be important? Because a strong sponsorship ethic, you get people doing things and they they're brought along and they're doing the things. They're taking the steps. They write your damn inventory. And they didn't mention that son of a bitch. They're doing on and on and on. Or someplace they just, well, you, they're just suggesting you do what you think is okay. <laughs> so I, th I hope that you in your home group, you will make certain one thing. That when people get up to talk, they are talking about alcoholism. You can be, a, and I, is, is my mistake in my mind, in many people's mind. And people that they want to be, because they, today, in these treatment centers, I don't know if over here, but in the States, the treatment centers, they load them up with antidepressants, and they come out, and they're just goofy, but they, I don't drink. I'm going to get my medallion if I can find the podium. <laughs> and they, Somehow they forgot the point. The purpose of AA is not to get off alcohol. The purpose of AA is to live in reality. That's what we're here for. And so we have to make sure that in our groups, I suppose, 
we maintain that line. And when people get up and say, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, what they're really saying is, look, I'm different, which is just the wrong direction to go here. And people have to come to understand, all we care about is if you're an alcoholic. I don't care if you're an addict, whether you twist baby chickens next for all I care. As long as you're an alcoholic. And this alcoholic, that gives me the sense of identification. And we talk about drinking. That's why, you know, I've been working with addicts for over 30 years. I probably know more about addiction than most addicts in the world. But when I sit in a meeting like this, I don't want to hear a glib talk about shooting up and snuffing up. I mean, it's information, good. But what gets my heart is some goof getting up and saying, well, I've been drinking a long time. I thought, Chris, I'll never get sober again, but Fred there is working with me, and I have been sober over a month, and I'm doing good. <laughs> Identification. I think about that. I have three daughters in AA, and a son who should be. I have a grandson in AA, and I have two great-grandsons, very small. One is either an alcoholic or the spawn of the devil. I look at his little neck and see that six, six, six in there back there. What did you, what did, you do with the TV control? <laughs> but he's moved to Italy now for a while. I get a little rest. I love him, but Jesus, he's a pain in the ass. But someday, if he comes to AA, comes to these doors, I hope they're talking about 12 steps and 12 traditions. And I hope they're talking about identification. This is how I felt. Our, our drinking procedures are all different. And you go by surfaces, you've got nothing in common. But underneath, those feelings of fear and insecurity and the fact that alcohol makes them better. That is what we have to talk about. And I want them to find that that's some counselor's gobbledygook about inner meanings of life. I want them to hear him talk about, I know how you feel, which is the greatest gift you and I will ever get. And finding somebody that, my God, he knows how I feel. How could that be? And so I think that no matter what happens in life, Alcoholics Anonymous and we all who are activists must continue to make sure that AA is full of people talking about alcoholism and its recovery. Not just about drinking. So many talks wind up, well, then I got sober. But about the recovery and how we go through that fear. I don't think it's going to work. And they're looking at me funny. And I'm not sure if it is. And all the things, and little by little, watching that slowly fade away as you stay here and do these actions. You know, it's an interesting thing. Since Alcoholics Anonymous was created, since the book Alcoholics Anonymous was created, there's only been one word changed in the 12 steps. The first, the first uh, printing of it said step 12. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in our affairs. And Bill's followers said, Bill, we haven't had any spiritual experience. You're the only one who had it. And you didn't have it as a result of these steps. You had that Towns Hospital in New York where anything ever happened. How do you explain that? 
Hmm. Well, they booked him themselves, so they had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> Years. And finally they realized somehow the actions and identifications here did something that nothing else in history has ever done for people like us. Brought about a gradual spiritual experience. An incremental spiritual experience. Not like Bill Wilson got his. Boom! But like we get ours. <clears throat> Make amends to that bitch. Are you crazy? <laughs> and so the second printing, this church, the 12 step read as it reads today, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We try to carry this message to alcoholics. So I hope that you will go back to your groups and I, as I will go back to mine. And I will do everything in my power to make sure that we talk about alcoholism and that alcoholics who come through that door have a chance to identify, not listen to some glib crap about something else. So, of course, I speak only for my opinion. And Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and everybody else. <laughs> and the second factor, of course, is if they want to update the book. Most recently came up and 2000, 2005, the International Convention, and at the meeting of the delegates after that, well before that, where they will to change the book. And it went through a lot of discussions. As a result of that, they didn't touch the first 164 pages, but changed the stories around and changed the covers, you know. And But they say, but it's written in an old-fashioned way. It's a nice place, but it's, and, you know, I understand that. When I came today in 1949 or so, they had me read this book, and I was a coming-up writer. And I read that book, and I thought, well, it's all right, but it's kind of dull, really. Really a dull book. Some years later, when I came off Skid Row and had my, news, my sponsor had me write, he said, I want you to read the book. I read that damn book. <laughs> he won't read it again. And I read it, and I realized I'd made a terrible mistake in my first reading. It was much duller than I remembered. <laughs> you know, I had been busy, successful, getting people to buy things. Buy this product! Take this action! Get out of here! And Christ, I read that book too. If you are thorough about this change, you really know it. <laughs> so I just gave up on that damn book. And I listened to that old sponsor, Bob. Then later I discovered that what he was telling me came out of that book, which just surprised me. And uh, little by little, over a period of time, I've come to be a great believer in that book. Now, the book is uh, one of the things, if you're new, you'll hear things. people say things like, oh, that book is a miracle. That is one of the, one of the most overworld, overused, misunderstood words in AA, miracle. Everything that happens, people say, that's a miracle. Remember a few years ago, I was sitting in a meeting somewhere, and this guy got up and says, I got up very early this morning, and I looked in the eastern sky, and I saw the sun coming up, and I said to my wife, I said, dear, it's a miracle, another day of golden sobriety. Oh, Jesus. Get up early tomorrow and have another one, you goof, you know. <laughs> Miracles are supposed to be unexplainable. Inexplicable is the word, I believe. They're supposed to be, why would they call this book a miracle? 
Well, there's a number of reasons. One, of course, it was written by a guy who didn't know enough to write it. So it had to be an inspired piece of writing. Surrounded by failure, most of the people he'd worked with by that time were drunk. Failure, people putting him down, ridiculous, ridiculing him, nonsense, can't pay my rent, writing a book so I can build a hospital, I can't even sell the damn book. What, what's a good three years sober? Now, if you're new, you might think, gee, three years sober? I bet you should be able to write a book by then. Mm. You will discover when you're three years sober, you don't know enough to write a book. By the time you're five years sober, you just try to be nice to people three years sober. Hang in there, Jim, you're doing a good job. By the time you're 10 years sober, you hate to send people three years sober to get your coffee. Yeah. Is that two creams and one sugar, two sugars and one cream? I'll get it for Christ's sake. By the time you're 20 years sober, you hate to have people three years sober unattended on your property. <laughs> I want to see how they're going to turn out before they get around my valuables. This guy, three years sober, surrounded by failure, probably 90% of the people by that time who did try to help were drinking. No success. Writing a book that uh, had to be inspired. He had no background in psychology or abnormal psychology or medicine or anything, just by observing the few people staying sober and what he felt. Wrote a book that has changed more alcoholic lives of our type in the last 65 years than all other therapies combined in the history of mankind. Now that is a miracle. This is a remarkable book. And people say, I'll study the book. Again, today's kind of an in thing. We'll get together and study the book. We'll read a sentence, then we'll discuss it. The book is not, in my opinion, designed for that. The book, what it is, is an emotional cookbook. It's full of recipes surrounded by narrative. And memorizing the big book it's like memorizing a cookbook. I've memorized that cookbook and then I'm starving to death. What the hell is this? You know. It means nothing what you know in the big book if you're not doing this stuff. And none of us do it very well. And none of us become wonderful. Sometimes you hear speakers who have just floated above it. Whoa, come back. No, God has offered me a beer. Some of us feel bad sometimes because even after we're sober a while, people criticize us and don't like what we're doing. Let me read you something I found in my files. It's a letter from Bill Wilson to some people in Chicago who wrote to him in 1960. He was sober 25 years and said, you disillusion us. You don't believe in the right things. You don't act right. And here's what he wrote, answered back. That you, I got this out of the archives in New York, that you seem disillusioned with me personally may be a new and painful experience for you. <laughs> but, but many members have had that experience with me. 
Most of their pain has been caused not only by my several shortcomings, but by their own insistence on placing me, a drunk, trying to get along with other folks, upon a completely illusory pedestal, a station which no fallible person could possibly occupy. I'm sure you will understand that I've never held myself out to anybody as either a saint or a superman. I have repeatedly and truthfully said that A is full of people who have made more spiritual progress than I ever have or can. That in some areas of living I have made some decided gains. That in others I seem to have stood still. And in still other ways I may even have gone backward. I am sorry you are disillusioned. But I am happy that even I have found a life here. Here's another touching letter. And sometimes people think we have to become wonderful and perfect. And we, some of the great things that ever happened, I mentioned the other day, one of the great things writing that book, Bill Wilson got away from those Oxford four absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity, and so on. Because for people like us, Alcox of our type, it seems like, we are perfectionists. And I'm going to do it right. And uh, if I can't do it right, after a while I get tired of it, then I don't do it at all. It's like, I'm going to seek this goal. Oh, I missed it. Okay, I'll move it up higher. Shit. <laughs> and that's why at the end of the 12 steps, probably some of the most valuable writing, we hear it again and again, but sometimes it just slides by. In fact, uh, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to the principles. We are not saints. We, are, we seek spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. We're trying to progress. One of the great things about A, I've always felt, I know who told it to me 40 years ago. He said, it was on New Year's. He said, you know, we're all making New Year's resolutions. He said, probably some of them last till January 5th, maybe till February with luck. He said, but AA, we got a much better deal. Every night here is New Year's Eve. Every night you can say, here's what I'm going to try to do better. And every day is New Year's Day and you get up to try it again. And you fail again some way. Well, thank God, tonight's New Year's Eve. And I can give it a shot. And I've done that for a lot of years. Because I fail a lot. I'm, I get disappointed in myself. I remember in 1970, I was asked to speak at the International Convention in Miami Beach. And I was just sick with excitement. God, that's And the first speaker that morning was the guy who had taken me to my first meeting in Wisconsin. The last speaker that night was Chuck Chamberlain, who was my current sponsor. And I was talking at noon. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. And I, I went home and I thought, I'm going to stop being cantankerous and edgy. I'm going to be a spiritual force for good in the city of Los Angeles. And I got in my car Monday morning to go to work down the Santa Monica Freeway. And I kind of had the rearview mirror turned so I could see the road and myself. I hadn't seen myself spiritually. And a woman came off the San Diego freeway, an old lady, about 70 miles an hour, and just missed me. <clears throat> just cut. And the new spiritual leader in California had his window down saying, You crazy bitch, what are you doing up there? <laughs> well, I'll go back to a couple more meetings till I get better. <laughs> but we all fail. We all, as I said last night, none of us rise above human beings. But we got to do a little better. That's all we can do. Try to treat people with kindness. 
But the, what's interesting about that book is to remember, that is made up of things to do. If you don't do them, they're worthless. Like looking at a cookbook, if you don't cook them, you're worthless. You can memorize it, you can call a page everything is on, you can tell people how much you know about the book. I think that book is an inspired book and I love it. But I, uh, I don't think my knowledge of it is going to keep me sober. I think my knowledge of it is going to maybe help me to try to listen to some goof I'm not interested in. Oh, really? You think people are looking at you funny? Yeah. A good example of that, one of the great lines of the book is that when all else fails, you work with another alcoholic. In 1963, I was five years sober, and I had front teeth now, and I was really doing good. I wanted to be secretary. The biggest group in town was Brentwood. And, I went, and they elected their, they had a steering committee that would appoint a secretary. And I had a stooge on that steering committee. So I said, Smokey, mention my name. Nominate me, see what happens. And I called next day, I said, did I get elected? I said, no, it died for lack of a second. <laughs> and about two weeks later, somebody said, the little meeting hall over here at Ohio Street, the Tuesday night meeting just died. You know anybody wants to start a meeting? I said, yes, I do. I'll get to be a secretary one way or another, goddammit. And I, I took my tattered little followers, a few people I sponsored, and I that afternoon I wrote a format that uh, seemed to be all everything I believed to be right in AA. And we had a first meeting, we had about uh, 13 or 14 people, and I made some inspiring announcements. The next week there were about 20 people, and I made some inspiring announcements. The next week there were 29 people, and I offended some people, and I got back to 12 people. <laughs> I was pushing that envelope, pushing that envelope, you know. But at the end of the year, we were getting about 45 people at the Pacific Group. And I thought, you know, it's a year, we could have an election. But that really would be unfair. These people are so new, they don't really understand all the things that go into keeping a group successful. So I'll just sacrifice myself, and I won't even mention the election, I'll just continue. <laughs> so at the end of the next year, two years, we're getting about 65 or 70 people now regularly. Now that we could have an election now. God, we're so close, but they're like an emerging third world country. They, they know the words, but they don't have the music yet. I'll, I'll sacrifice myself and continue. And about two months later, some boob came up to me whose life I had saved, I'm sorry to say. Are we ever going to have the election around here? And why is that? We, we're observing the traditions. We're growing as a healthy, wonderful group. Why do you say that? He said, well... Some of the people around here say you're a dictator. And, uh, uh, if we could just have an election and elect you in, nobody could say a word. Good idea, Jimmy. So the next week, my announcement, I said, you know, it may be necessary for us to have an election, to have a new secretary. Now, when I say have a new secretary, that just means a, another secretary. You can vote for whoever you want to, no matter how long they've been secretary or anything else about it. So I had my election, and they swept me out of office. <laughs> but to show you what wonderful work I had done, even after I left, it really took off. <laughs> and now it's the largest weekly meeting in the world, almost a, 
Many of you have been there, almost a thousand people every Wednesday night, get in the synagogue and have a meeting. And I'm not, a, I'm not the secretary, <laughs> but I'm the founder. <laughs> and I sit and give little signals. <laughs> Nobody pays any attention, cheers me up, you know. After the meeting, after the meeting, this has got so comments old had it bores me. They bring me some newcomer up and say, This is this is Clancy. He started this meeting way back in 1963. He's travels all over the world in airplanes talking at AA. He's been sober almost 50 years, they said. They say, Oh. <laughs> Welcome. I hope you brought your problems tonight. Many folks leave them here. <laughs> Just blah. Once in a while, some idiot will come up who doesn't know who I am. <laughs> and he'll say, I don't know about you, pal, but you seem to have a certain tie on there. Uh, could you give me a ride back to the VA psycho ward after the meeting? <laughs> and the great thing about A, you can think whatever you want. I can look right into his sick little eyes and think, what? Give you a ride to the VA psych award, you should have stayed there, you crazy son of a bitch. Yeah, I'm not just some guy in a shirt and tie. I'm Clancy I from up in the sky. <laughs> Bringing hope throughout the world. Now you can think that as long as you say, okay. <laughs> and the miracle of alcoholics and anonymous is this, no matter what other pleasures I supposed to get. I drop that puke off at the veterans hospital and I drive home, my head says, oh Clancy, is there no end to your goodness? <laughs> it's an amazing thing to get all those accolades and then feel good because I give a guy a ride home. But that's the story of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why we're here. I think that's why we have to remember. The last thing I want to talk about quickly is anonymity. Our book is is great the way it is, I believe. And anonymity, they say, well, maybe we should have been anonymous in 1935 to protect people. God, over the years, it's become wonderful to become known as name. And it turns out it may have been started anonymity to protect people, but it evolved very quickly into something entirely different. It evolved into a spiritual concept. The last letter Bill Wilson wrote before he died was dealing with the necessity of maintaining anonymity as a spiritual concept of all of us living under the AH tent of anonymity. Now, sometimes anonymity isn't very well understood by new people. Because of the nature of my work in Los Angeles, I, uh, they come and interview me a lot over the years about alcoholism and people on skid row and so on, and treatment of alcoholism. And, uh, People say, you broke your anonymity. You said you were a recovered alcoholic on television. And I said, no, that's not breaking anonymity. I am a recovering alcoholic. But so when you break anonymity, what I say, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. When A and I are in the same sentence, then you no longer can see my face and you can't have my name. It's a, it's a kind of a funny thing that's a, in 19, in 2000, A and E Network did a big thing on Alcoholics Anonymous. And they interviewed four people from around the country to talk about it. 
and I was the one in my part of the country. Perhaps now you recognize me. <laughs> you just can't do that. The, uh, but it is kind of funny. In the 1960s, alcoholism started to get a little better known. And so it was a hip thing to have alcoholics on your program. And I used to get other, they'd call me into like KLAC radio, and I'd go on there, and I, I, my name would be Alcoholic Al. And then I remember this one announcer said to me, he said, I just told him about my story a little bit. He said, Al, you mean to say that you parked your car in your garage and actually committed suicide? I said, yes. He said, I've never known anyone that actually tried to kill themselves before. I guess I've been an A too long. I said, Jesus, the first person I ever met that didn't. Yeah. <laughs> But anonymity, I, now, why, why would breaking, you know, when I, 19, I saw a good example of it, 1958, there was a woman named Lillian Roth, and she wrote a book called I'll Cry Tomorrow, and she had a page and a half in there on her AA membership, and her sponsor said, you shouldn't put your name in like that, she said, I'm going to help AA, I'm going to, when they know Lillian Roth is an AA, they'll want to come, and so she published a book, and couple years later when she was laying face down drunk in Palm Springs in her own vomit. I don't know what she did for you then, but uh, I don't think it hurt A.A. at all. The next year, John Barrymore, famous actor, his daughter, Diana Duff Barrymore, wrote a book, and she even took it a step further. She not only had been helped by A.A., they had now enabled her to have wine with dinner. <laughs> and uh, a couple years later when she died in the Malibu drunk tank, I guess I don't know if she helped anybody. But I have, over the years, never seen anybody break their anonymity and be helped by it. Now, I don't think God's in his heaven saying, oh, that guy broke his anonymity. <sighs> you know, why would breaking your anonymity hurt you so much in AA? I think because of this. To do that, what you're saying in effect is this. I've been helped by AA, and I'm kind of above them now. And look, I'm helping those people under that tent by letting you know that I'm here. And all of a sudden, you're no longer a member of the flock. You're... You're off by yourself doing something special. And when the wind starts to blow, you've got no place to go. And it happens again and again and again. Anonymity is the spiritual concept of surrendering my ego and my will to the good of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the 12 steps said, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, of this anonymity, we try, to bring, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. But of course, that is the condensation of the original step, the 12th step. You ought to read the long form if you haven't read them, because they really get to the root. And there's a phrase at the end of the long form that to me sums up why we do all these things, why we go to meetings, and why we try to listen to people. And sometimes we're not interested, but God damn it, he has a right to find somebody to talk to. And on and on and on. And the last phrase of the 12th step in the long form is, why are we doing these things? This to the end, that our great blessings shall never spoil us, that we shall forever live in grateful contemplation of he who presides over us all. And that really sums it all up. That's why we're here. 
We get carried up, we get caught up in our emotions, we're childish sometimes, we're petty and we're jealous and we're nasty and we're insecure. And we don't act very well and thank God tonight's New Year's Eve and I can do something about it. But all the things we've heard this weekend from Mike's extraordinary talk on Thursday night all the way through the workshops, the discussions, the sitting around the pool talking about AA for one purpose. This to the end that our great blessings may never spoil us that we shall forever live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. God bless you. There's one thing I'd like to call the attention of the marathon chairman or whoever in charge, uh, in the 12 steps, the 12th step is not printed correctly. I don't know how this happened. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others. And that is not the, what it says in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says to uh, alcoholics. We, the idea of carrying it to others who are not alcoholics is lethal for people like us. It truly is. It truly is. It cost the Washingtonians their existence 150 years ago. And my friend John H. crossed that out and put it in alcoholics, but I'm surprised it lasted all weekend before somebody noticed it. This, um, incidentally, these young people who read this morning, John and Patty, they are married, and they're both rather intense personalities. And uh, before they got spiritual, they really used to have some terrible knockdown, drag out fights. Terrible. And it's our philosophy here that uh, the family that bleeds together reads together. Yeah. The topic for this meeting is, but my case is different. Now, this uh, this marathon. Some of you are new, may not understand what the marathon is kind of about. Marathons are relatively new in AA, not relatively new, I guess, but uh, they were started at this convention, how long, 20 years ago? About 20 years ago, how long? 72. Well, I can't work that out. 26 years ago, and they were started by a guy named Chuck Nisbet and Keith, and they started these, and because they felt there was a need in conventions for sometimes for people for, who needed a place to go when they, were, when they were full of something or had to go somewhere and just get off the sidewalk or something because all the excitement, and especially when you're new, is really overpowering the big convention. And they started this as kind of a test to see if it would work. And it worked rather well, of course, and over the years it got to be quite good and, uh, and got some customs. And as a matter of fact, in 1980, it had worked so well that the World Service Conventions asked us to start a marathon at the International Convention. And they have a marathon at the International Convention now. And uh, Chuck and Keith went down to New Orleans in 1980. We all helped them get it set up. And they had this, and every time it goes, it's been very well attended because people sometimes you just need somewhere to get, to sit down and not have to be anything or do anything or feel anything, just be part of something. The, uh, and this marathon this uh, this weekend 
has been much the same. It started Friday with step one, and then over the past two and a half days, it's been a series of the slogans and the 12 steps and the actions of AA. People have gotten up at five in the morning and talked about sponsorship, and three in the morning and talked about the meaning of what AA is and so on. And uh, we're now at the last meeting with this candle. This candle was kind of an interesting thing. It finally came about in the 1970s where we we lit a candle to start the marathon to indicate this light of the spirit of it were as it were. At the last meeting, it was taken from the marathon room to the main hall where the meeting was. And one of the aspects of opening that meeting was blowing out the candle, indicating we are now in the final stage. Now the morning meeting is going to be in here, isn't it? Our meeting this morning. So we won't have to go anywhere to blow it out anyway. But the uh, for, for a long time, the 9 o'clock meeting, the final meeting, was conducted by Chuck Chamberlain. And really was a big crowd would pour in. They could, just couldn't hardly get him in. And I was at the 8 o'clock meeting. There seemed to be a lot of seats at that, that meeting. <laughs> I think Johnny had the 7 o'clock meeting. Just people getting up there and giving the address of the big book for an hour. And Harvey Andrews, I guess, had the 6 o'clock meeting only because he didn't, couldn't sleep at night and he was here. He only went up at 6. But this went on for some time and then Chuck got sick and passed away, of course, and I, we all moved up one. And, uh, and now Johnny is nervously waiting. Millie Greenberg and I are staying young. But the subject this morning is feeling different. And you know, it's an interesting thing. You look at the last three leaders this morning. We have Harvey Andrews, who, uh, who's been married a number of times. I'll tell you something, to tell you one of the one of the tragedies of getting old. Harvey and I were sitting together at the banquet last night at the head table. Um, I was helping him stay awake and he was helping me stay awake. But at the head table and uh, we were talking about a girl he had married 25 years ago. I sponsored her. He moved to West LA and he eloped with her. And neither one of us could think of her name. Now that tells us something. I had to go down and ask Millie Greenberg her name. She, Judy, oh yeah, I don't know. What but here's, now you must admit, this case is different. You can tell that. And at 8 o'clock, we had the ex-convict uh, who uh, was in prison and not a very nice type. And uh, his closest identification is Don Newcomb, who's a bad type in himself. And, you know... He's not like most of us decent people. <laughs> then now at 9 o'clock, you have a, a leader who I still think holds the records for most electric shock treatments get, gotten at Big Spring State Hospital in Big Spring, Texas. I could test light bulbs for a year afterward. <laughs> I 
I think certainly these people are different. Of course, they're different. No, no wonder they feel different. They don't to talk about. But as, as we all come to understand, that uh, that's not the difference we're talking about here at all. Those are not the differences. I sometimes think about things like a few years ago, a guy I sponsored in Rizal's. I was dead now, so I can mention his name. But he had a, he had a very famous American playwright who had written some great stuff. He wrote Pulitzer Prize and award-winning stuff. And he wrote uh, Goodbye Little Sheba, an AA story. And this guy had been sober in AA 12 years in New York. And then he got drunk, and he could not get sober again. He could not get sober again. And he said, will you go up and talk to him? So I said, sure. So I went up to his house after work in the afternoon. I made an appointment. And I went to his big swank mansion in the Hollywood Hills, and the, and the butler let me in and introduced me to the inside maid who took me to this master bedroom, which is enormous. And on the walls, there's an Academy Award, New York uh, Theater Awards, every kind of award you could get. Emmys, everything, just anything you, you strive for. This lovely ornate white bedroom, all white rugs, white everything. And in the bed, a little huddled man with his teeth out so he wouldn't choke, laying there. And uh, the thrust of our conversation, uh, the final thrust of our conversation was he, uh, he finally told us that, uh, he told me that, but you don't understand, my case is different. Just as different as if he'd been in prison or hospitals or anywhere else. As a matter of fact, he finally got sober. He got sober. He started coming to our meetings, and some of us remember him. You remember, don't you? And uh, he did quite well. And then he got feeling a little bad again, and he started to retreat beyond that, behind that, but you don't know my case is different story. And we tried to talk him out of it, but he'd, he'd been so successful, he knew that his case truly was different, and we wouldn't understand. Uh, on Saturday, one Saturday morning, uh, he called up and said, I, I'm not going to be able to, he used to come to the yard, he didn't play, but he used to come and watch, I just want you to know I'm not coming to the yard to watch today, because I really have the depression, and I said, you better call Maurice, he said, no, I don't think I need to call Maurice, I'm going to call my psychiatrist, because he will, uh, he understands the nature of my illness, I know you people mean well, but you don't really understand, and I said, you're doing well, Bill, why don't you just, yeah, so he, uh, he didn't come, and that night he didn't come to the meeting. And the next morning we opened the Times and said, Pulitzer Prize award-winning writer commits suicide. He just thought and realized how different he was about eight o'clock that night, he put a bullet in his head, just like that. And you see a lot of that because I, to me, it has nothing to do with what you have or what you don't have on the outside. We talk about that a lot. Because what you have, on, what makes you so different on the inside? I don't suppose there's anything in the world that is more, in my opinion, more general to alcoholics, and maybe to other people, I don't know about other people, but general to alcoholics, than coming here with that feeling of difference. I've never heard an AA talk who didn't talk in one way or another that they always they felt different, or they didn't fit in, or they didn't feel good, which is one of the great reasons they drank. And they get sober, and they still don't feel like they fit in. And you just get the feeling that, when will I ever change? These, this, this AA is wonderful, but I'm not like that. And so they have, in some places, for people who feel they have a severe reason for feeling different, they have kind of special interest groups. They have groups of doctors, so a doctor can come and say, I'm a doctor, I'm not so different, there are other sober doctors. And there are lawyers, and there are airline pilots, and there are actors. And I remember when I was about two years sober, and these people all do, they get together, and they have meetings, and they talk about the special problems they have because of their occupation.
when I was about two years sober, I really, uh, around the, uh, I used to live around the club in Beverly Hills where they did this actor's meeting. Oh, God, I wanted to go that. I mean, I, I try to be slick, but I'm from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I just... <laughs> when I see him, I try to look unimpressed, but I... Until I got sponsoring someone realized how dreary they really were. But, but I really, uh, I did everything I could. You had to be invited to this meeting as a, as a famous actor. Usually I get a little further into my anecdotes than that, but what uh, did But I sucked around people I just hated, and I was nice to be able to just hit with a rock, and just, just to get that invitation. And finally, I got an invitation. Also, thrilled about going to this guy's ornate garage, which is better than most houses in Beverly Hills. And, and I had a Monday night and sat there, and it really was just what it came to me. All half the actors I'd ever seen in movies were sitting in that room, just one after another, just big stars and all. And they went around the room, and I felt kind of sheepish. I had about two years sobriety and didn't have any front teeth. And, and they went around the room and and I was just thrilled, and they got around to me, and I, I said some stupid little thing, and, and on the way home, it suddenly struck me. These guys have been meeting there for six or seven years, and they were famous for their meeting. But I had the most sobriety in the room, because they all understood each other's slips, because their case was different, because they were actors, and they couldn't stay sober the way ordinary people do. And that's the way it is with special interest groups. That's what makes those special interest groups so unpleasant today, and that's why we warned against special interest groups, because they reinforce the feelings of being different. Yes, I, I am sober, but I am different. And this terrible feeling of difference is, is, a, is an almost insurmountable barrier. I see people die from alcoholism over the last few years in my job, and I see people die in the street and sidewalks, and I'm surrounded by people who, uh, who don't, can't seem to live in the world. And I suppose I've talked to, I used to talk to a lot of them, I don't talk so much anymore because I realize it's, it has to come from them. But the one thing that always seems to come up, but my case is different. I don't know anything that is more common to people with a problem like ours. And that's what makes uh, it so strange to people around us. You know, we talk about alcohol problems and, and alcoholics, they seem to be different. Nobody ever knew much about alcoholism. When Bill Wilson wrote this book, he had kind of a he had kind of a gut feeling that he couldn't he had no education in it, but he, that there was different types of alcoholics because he mentions in this book again and again our type of alcoholic. He doesn't know what any other other types are, but he knows that our type. And there seems to be general. We seem to have come to understand, at least in my opinion, various some various types of alcoholics because we see them in life. We see people who apparently to the naked eye are alcoholics. They drink, and they drink badly, they get have bad, you know. But these, when something bad happens or really captures their attention, these people are, are able to quit. And they say, oh man, after that accident, I never drank again. Or after my little son died, I never drank again. Or after I lost my family, I never drank again. And we've all heard cases like that. And then there's another type of alcohol, and they just seem to live without drinking. And there's another type of alcoholic, apparently, 
And they are people who become physically addicted to alcohol. They become, you know, certainly some alcohol of all types become physically addicted. But these people become physically addicted, and they need hospitalization to get off it. And that's why it's so often you hear about people going to hospitals, and yet never had to hear a lot of people who don't go to hospitals. But the people who go to hospitals, like for instance, Chick Shadell in, in Washington years ago had a claim that they could uh, get people to return to normal drinking. When they realized that didn't, couldn't happen, they now have a program that they still advertise. We will, we will stop your alcoholism in seven days. And a number of successes, they have a number of successes. People who have gone there have been medically withdrawn from alcohol addiction, and they don't want any more of it, and they stay away from it from then on. And so we all know cases like that. Yes, he used to drink, but he got off it. And then there's this other group, which we call of our type, which is baffling not only to the people around us, but to ourselves, because we know we should be able to do what they're doing. God, that guy got off. My mother's uncle, Leo, I heard about him when I was drinking as a young man. He got sober in 1924, I guess, through the church. And, you know, I used to hear about him in the 1940s when I was drinking. My mother would say, remember Uncle Leo? He used to drink like you, but he doesn't drink anymore. So I don't look at Uncle Leo. And I, I couldn't put it together, but I realized now what it was. I don't think he smiled after 1924. You know, just... And... Uh, his, his wife would keep reminding him what he did in 1920, you know. Remember that time, Leo, 1920, we ran the mountains in the ditch? I thought, well, he's, he's got more strength than I got. I'm not bad. But I see people quit drinking. I, and I'm sure most people in this room have done that. I have tried to quit drinking and gave it everything I had. I gave it everything I had. And eventually the time came when I... The one time I ever really tried to stop that because I felt so bad because that son had died when I was in jail. And I stopped drinking. And the net result was my life became so terrible I couldn't stand it. And I didn't blame it on anybody or anything. Just my life was terrible. The job I liked had become hideous to me. The people around me I hated. My children who I was doing it for, I couldn't stand their noise. They irritated me, their grating noise. And I knew I shouldn't be like this. I wanted to get out of the state. I wanted to get out of here. And there was no way out. And I felt so guilty about my son. I just, but I promised on his casket I wouldn't drink again. And I didn't. And what do you do then? And uh, one day my wife took the children to church. And I just pulled the car in the garage and hooked up an exhaust pipe on the car and went to sleep and died. I didn't know what else to do. And some guy found me in the car dead briefly and pulled me out and beat my chest and beat my mouth, got me to the hospital, I went to stay in San Salvador. But they, but that's, that's what happens when I stop drinking. Now why, and people say, if you'd only stop drinking, you'd be all right. And right inside of me, the voice always says, as it says in me, as I'm sure it says in you. But you don't understand. My case is different. The universal cry, I have never been accepted, apparently, like other people. Other people don't seem to, I don't seem to blend in. The things I have aren't the things I want. The things I want, I can't have. The things I have, I don't want. The, the situations are different. I, I feel less than. I never really understood this so clearly as in the last few years since I've been in AA and listening to inventories. I, uh, when I, when I, 
was about six months sober, I, I felt so bad, and I had a sponsor who was rather strong, and he insisted I write an inventory, and I almost did, because I'd almost rather kill myself than, because I've taken my inventory of the psychiatrist. What good is he going to do to take me the out-of-work actor who doesn't get up and he means well, but he's just a, he's a nice guy. But I felt so bad, I finally wrote an in, he got me so upset that I wrote an inventory, and I was so upset, I wrote down things I had never told a soul and never was going to tell a soul. I wrote terrible, dirty, rotten, petty things. You know, I don't mind talking about being in the nut houses and the jails and everything, but the little chicken shit things, the rotten, slim, slimy, dirty little things. <laughs> oh, I hope I never get that upset again. People. People would say to me, well, why, don't you, why wouldn't you tell your psychiatrist these things that you put in your intro? Very simply, when you're paying that kind of money, you can't afford rejection. That's why, you know. You did what, sir? Get out of my office. Wash off that chair on the way out. Uh, but I put this terrible thing down, and then I went on a... A week later, I I'd hidden the paper under the back seat of an abandoned car I was living in, and... My sponsor came by and, and insisted I go with him in his car, and we went to uh, Oxnard along the ocean, and he gave me a flashlight, and I read this hideous thing. And I didn't want to read it. I mean, I wanted to skip over it, just, oh, God. <laughs> and I knew when we got to, he made me get out of his car. And we got to Oxnard, and I finished it. And he reached over, and he patted me on the back. He said, that's the best thing you've done since you got sober, kid. And I couldn't believe it. I understand what he means now. But there are things that made me totally different. And I, uh, I look back now, and I, uh, in the last 40, 38 years now, since I, I started listening to inventories, I've listened to maybe over 200 inventories, most of them on that same highway, stretch of highway, with some other boob over there with a flashlight and a... Well, let me explain this part before I read it. Yeah. And you really get an insight in listening to a lot of inventories on how similar, how similar we all are at that level. How similar we all are at that level. In my opinion, a good inventory is always the same. The specifics vary, but it's always the same. Lack of self-worth, guilt, feeling different, and occasionally lashing out at the world to punish them for why they're hurting me. And it's always the same thing. The very things vary. Uh, I often say one week I heard uh, an inventory, I think on a Monday night, from a woman who was, whose father was a, one of the two or three best-known men in the 20th century. And a few days later, I listened to a guy named Ramon Pena, who, born under a bridge in El Paso, didn't ever know who his father was. And their, spot, their inventories were exactly the same. And she lived in a penthouse in Beverly Hills. And he... Uh, he was just out of the Washington State Penitentiary. But their specifics had nothing in common, but it's always that same thing, that feeling of difference, less than, guilty, uh, feeling different, uh, lashing out at the world to try to hurt them. And this is a conditioned force that stays with us. And we just I discovered, I'm sure you do too, that stopping drinking, on the, on the whole, stopping drinking, all it does is bring that feeling back. Because I have no idea that for people like me, an alcoholic of this type that they're talking about, the thing that makes me an alcoholic is that alcohol has an unnatural effect on me. 
And the unnatural effect is that it nearly always eases off those feelings. It eases off guilt. It eases off feeling less than. I don't know anybody that I know of who drinks like I do, who hasn't had the feeling of just feeling terrible and having a few drinks and just feel it coarse into your body and your fingers tingling. Ah, it's so nice to be something at night after being a wussy all day at work. Just, it's just... And wonderful things happen sometimes. You, you can feel like something. You get to be a fighter some nights, and some nights you get to be a lover, and some nights old beasts become beautiful before midnight. You, and when I'm sober, and then I do things that I'm ashamed of, and I determine to change it, but when I'm sober again, I can't do it. I was much surprised after being in and out of AA for years, knowing that AA worked, knowing that AA was fine. I went to AA in a lot of places. But the one thing I always knew, my case is different. My case is different. Why is my case different? Because, damn it, my problem isn't alcohol. And that's really what it boils down to. That's the bottom line in coming in here. My problem isn't alcohol. My problem is a series of feelings and emotions and feeling different and less than and unloved and don't care and I never had a good break and people don't understand me. And when I drink, I feel better. And when I don't drink, I feel worse. Just that simple. The one thing I always knew, I could not be an alcoholic. I drank like an alcoholic. I could sit in Amy's, tell drinking stories with anybody. I could talk about hospitals and jails and nut houses. I could talk about being in a straitjacket. I could talk about getting 36 electric shock treatments. I could talk about a lot of things. But the one thing down deep inside of me, the one tattered piece of integrity I had left that I hadn't sold out was, I can say I'm an alcoholic. I never minded saying I was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because I knew I wasn't. It's just a shock. If they just said, if they just said, is there anybody here who secretly feels they're crazy? There's one back there, I think. Because that's what I secretly felt. I felt there was something terribly wrong with me. That's one of the great reasons, of course, that this feeling of difference that is so lethal in, in uh, for people like me, psychoanalysis. Our speaker Friday night was referring to, uh, to it a little bit. He quoted me as saying something that was pretty close. But, you know, the thing about psychoanalysis for people like me. Uh, now, did Ray V said, was he a psycho, psychologist, psychoanalyst? Yeah. Psychotherapist. Oh. Well, that's right. He went home early. He, he came when he heard you here. But I, I went to a psych, psychotherapist, psychoanalysis, and what it does for people like me it doesn't, it, what it does, there's a positive side. It gets rid of guilt. Now, I'll tell you how a psychoanalysis for people like me gets rid of guilt. Just gets rid of guilt for some people. Just like inner child gets rid of guilt for some people. It convinces me that I am and I've always been a victim. It's not my fault. I never was loved. I never was cherished. I never was taken care of. People who should have helped me didn't. And, on, on. and so it, it really isn't my fault. 
it's their fault. So in whatever I do, it's only because I was programmed this way, so you can't blame me. And that's a nice thing to have, except the, the little price tags you pay for that, you don't see at the time, but you see them in retrospect. The price tag that you are, that you become consumed little by little with resentments over the people who failed you. Going back to your parents 50 years ago, whatever it might be, if only my mother and father had treated me well, if only they'd have seen that I needed these extra things, if only they'd have been nurtured, if only that girl, if only that guy, you know, I don't know. When you go to these kind of meetings, they're not like AA meetings, I'll tell you, they don't sit and laugh in the meetings, they come out of there and they're intense because they have reinforced and intensified resentment. And of course, the other thing, of course, is that is that you have to come to accept the fact that you're terminally different. You're, never, you're always going to be this way. You're never going to change. I never really understood it to her. One of the gurus say one time, we were like trees when we were sapling. Someone destroyed our insides. And our outsides are fine. We grew up to be total trees. But inside of us, there's still rottenness and because it, we were not treated correctly. So you have to accept the fact, no matter how you look, you're going to be different and less than and inadequate. And the third price tag you pay, which is quite obvious if you think about it, intermittent but intense self-pity. God, I could have been something. If only I could have, if only they would have, if only. And there isn't a person in the world who doesn't know that, I mean, in this group, I wouldn't think, who doesn't know that feeling sometimes. And that's another thing you get out of drinking. Sometimes you really feel sad and you want to feel better, you can sit and drink and cry. But only, but only married that girl, I... But I never got her name. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. Only other change. And this is what the therapy I know. And so I come to AA like everybody else comes to AA. I'm sure with a feeling of intense difference. I, uh, the one difference I could not accept is this. I was like an alcoholic in so many ways, but the one thing was different. Unlike alcoholics, their problems are when they drink, they have upsets and pains and heartaches. When I get sober, I have upsets, upsets and pains and heartaches. The worst pain of my life is when I try to stay sober. And I heard this book read, and I read this book, and I skimmed and did this and that. It's a funny thing about this book, I should tell you if you're kind of new. And maybe it's if you're old too. But I read that book several times over the years. But in the last few years, I've been reading it a book study. We have a book study in West L.A. And when you read that book in the book study for 20 minutes, there are things in there I never read before. Because instinctively, when you're a reader, your eyes skim over what looks to be dull. And uh, But when you have to read it out loud, you have to make it all meaningful. And I, I, I watched that book. That book specifically states things that I thought I learned on my own 25 years ago, 40 years ago. Just... It it's a building thing once you understand it. It really is remarkable. But this book talks about cases like mine. And they say things like, there are uh, times there is no adequate defense against the first drink for people like us, for alcoholics of our type. Why is there no adequate defense against the first drink? Because if I don't drink, I'm gonna go crazy. That's why. Or I'm gonna kill myself, or I'm gonna do something terrible. Now, what kind of an alcohol problem is that? That is not an alcohol problem. And it takes a while longer to do what you've heard from this podium and many podiums this weekend, to allow yourself to be driven to take actions that you do not believe in so you can survive here long enough 
for no apparent reason, except that the ones who survived discover that I somehow hurt so bad I did some things I wouldn't ordinarily have done, and I stayed here long enough to realize that I was not so different after all. I suppose of all the gifts I've ever received in my life, the greatest gift is when I stayed here sober for a while after I was sober, long enough to gradually come to understand there's a name for my condition. And it is not an alcohol problem. It is something called alcoholism, which sounds the same if you're kind of new, but it's tremendously different. Tremendously different. And it's that way all over the world. People come here and die. They die, they're dying around us in Los Angeles, where LA, I think, is generally accepted as the best AA in the world. There's no place like it. You're in the, you know, there's still people who think, well, how about, how about Akron? You know, how great it is. Akron has the same relationship to AA that Bethlehem has to Christianity. Something nice happened there once, but not for a long time. Yeah. There are more sober alcoholics in Southern California than in New York and Illinois combined. And the quality of AA is remarkable in, in Southern California. All kinds of lively groups. Yet there are people dying in AA groups all around Southern California because they've gone to groups and stayed in groups where they preach the same monotonous, downbeat stuff you hear in the failures all over the country. Well, you put the plug in the jug and you just kind of don't drink and you go to meetings. And, and God, most of us slippers have done that till we died from it. The point is you have to come to realize that my, the problem is not alcohol. If alcohol were the problem, there'd be no need for a convention here. We'd all just stop drinking and go home. The problem here is that for people like me, and I presume like you if you're in this room, that stopping drinking eventually makes your life unbearable. So that is the big, that's the big thing. The one thing that made me feel different was the thing that makes me fit in here. But who would ever, you can't find that out right away. The greatest gift I ever got was discovering that I was an alcoholic. Because when I became an alcoholic, my feelings of being different diminished about 80%. I don't suppose I'll ever get over feeling different. I don't suppose you'll ever get over feeling different. There are times you don't feel different. I'm just one with the world. But wait till the next time you're crabby, or someone hurts your feelings, or your boss looks at you funny, or you're screwed again. Uh, I knew it all along. <laughs> but if you got some kind of a program, you march through that and you go on to the next event, hopefully. I was going to commit suicide, but I got to make coffee Friday, so shit. Sure. <laughs> and when you're not so different, I suppose also the great, the second great thing comes with that is something that would seem so remarkably strange, but. The concept, I, I was able to gradually come to believe that God could stand me. Because when you're alone, hearing words about God is meaningless. When I was a boy, like most people, I was raised in strict church. I was a sinner. I broke all Ten Commandments eventually. I used to say that I, I didn't break all Ten Commandments. I've never coveted my neighbor's manservant. Of course, living in L.A., I say, yes. Uh, 
But I knew I was a sinner, and people talk about God to me, and I didn't want to hear it. The stronger belief you had in your boy, the worse, the worse, the more guilty you feel, the more sinner you feel. And that's the, one of the great things is that when I found a name for my condition, I began taking action that I didn't believe in. Well, among the other things that change is little by little, you begin to. I'll tell you, the toughest jury I've ever had to face is right inside my head. That's why I think it's possible, like Ray was talking this morning, to have a lot of things, and a lot of people have a lot of things, and they're terribly uncomfortable. Because I think people like us have a jury that says, you're unworthy, you son of a bitch. And you, you just can't justify good things. The hardest thing I know of is to work hard enough to justify the good things you get so you don't feel bad about them. If you listen to inventories, you find again and again, people start to get things and they screw it up. Start to get things and they screw it up. Start to get things and they screw it up. It's almost as though their head is saying, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Because I believe people of our type have two, at least two forces with us among a million more. There's a Puritan in me that, is, to me, good is good. And bad is screw it. And there's nothing in between. And one of the great problems in my life, I've tried to be good. I've worked on being good and fought to be good and missed. So my reaction is to set the goals higher. Yeah. Just can't do it. Just can't do it. It's an interesting thing in Alcoholics Anonymous to learn that one of the things you can do here is lower your goals. Lower your expectations. Lower what is good. Shit. <laughs> And one day you're doing pretty good. But to lower that, this perfectionism has been talked about many times. You know, in the 1950s, Yale University had a big study of alcoholics, a big clinical study of all time. They studied people of all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of uh, sociological backgrounds, and intellectual backgrounds, and economic backgrounds. And they had known alcoholics being tested against known non alcoholics. And for example, they'd give them each two drinks to see if they could see a difference. They give the alcoholics two drinks, then the non-alcoholics two drinks, and see if they could see a difference. And uh, which one would be an alcoholic in that test? You know. <laughs> well, that's all our tests for today. Bullshit, it is. <laughs> but but they, they, they have big reports this thick, but simmer down to the last, they have two things that they cannot understand. One. One they could understand is that all the known alcoholics rank in the top five percentile of perfectionism. And secondly, the alcoholics, for some reason they cannot, shouldn't be, their, their personality profile changes after drinking. It should never do that. It should be a little dulled perhaps, but, but no one ever understood that I become a different person when I drink. You know the guy who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson? He was an alcoholic. And uh, you know, the story if it's true, and I believe it's true. His wife said to him, Well, Robert, you write such nice things, Treasure Island. So how did you get an idea for such a thing as this? He said, Came to me in a dream, dear. And I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. A lot of dreams. Because you know, in there the the concept is just like you and I know. I understand that concept exactly. There's a doctor who's very good. But he wants to know what it's like to be evil. So he mixes up this crap and drinks it, 
and becomes evil. And you learn one thing from that. Never drink out of a glass that smokes. Uh, bad thing. And he goes to be an evil trial, and he goes to have to drink, and goes back to being the doctor again. And it's fun. He says, I've done that a million times on weekends, haven't you? Well, time to go to evil. <coughs> and what destroyed Dr. Jekyll, of course, is when he lost control of when he's going to be evil. You'll start being evil without intending to. And that's happened to everybody I know like me. As long as I'm able to control my escape, I'm, it's great, and I can do it. But I've lost control of the escape, and I can't stand going back. I can't be, I can't be good, and being bad is killing me. And there you are. And my feelings of difference. So it really synthesizes down to this. All of the things we do, all of the actions we take here, that seem to have no application to a deep problem. I think we have to start with this premise. I must continue to take actions that remind me and guide me into continuing to believe that I am truly an alcoholic of our type. That I, one of the great reasons for meetings is doing that. You know, the meetings originally started in Akron. They didn't start to help anybody stay sober. They started so that they would have some place they could bring newcomers to prove there were people actually staying sober. Look, there are eight people in this room and never saw anything like that. And over the years, they've evolved into different purposes. And the meetings have become places where you go and they become partially social, partially uh, educational, partially uh, fun things to do, partially kind of a go in the class again. But primarily, overall, they are designed to, re to refocus me little by little on a continuing basis, like driving down the road. Now, with how straight the road is, you don't hold the wheel like that, no matter how straight the road is. It's a continual thing like that. And that's the way to do my emotions. Even when I'm doing the best I know how and feeling well, I gotta keep those reforming. Because the purpose of that enables me not to let that feelings of being different consume me. I don't think I'll ever get over the feeling of being different, nor will you in my opinion. But I have a way to cope with it and deal with it and make it put it out of the way for a long time. One of the great values of working with others. When I'm thinking about that person, I'm not thinking about me. That's the greatest thing I know about working with other people. Sure, there's great ego gratifications and saying, oh, yes, yes, that's my baby, and I gave him a cake, and he's got so many years, and all. <laughs> that's all very nice, but that's not what we're looking for. I mean, we look for it because we're human. But the thing is, when I'm thinking about you, I'm not thinking about me. And I, I stop being different at all when I'm working with you. And little by little, I'm doing something of beyond my ability to do it sometimes emotionally, but you do it little by little. I, uh, I feel so sorry for people who can, do not have tools to do with that terrible deal, tools to deal with that terrible feeling of being different. That's why I think the greatest number one reason for saying active and alcoholic synonymous, because you may stay sober. I was talking to an Alamon last night at the banquet. She said her husband got sober in 1974, and he stayed, he went to meetings for two years, and he's not going to a meeting since. I said, huh. She said, I don't think he's been comfortable ever since either. I guess there are some people who can do that, but I'm too weak. I, I, I have to feel good. Like that phrase, look, we are like people who absolutely must have some feelings of goodness, or feel good, have some anticipation of it. And that's why we share our experience, strength, and hope with each other. You know, all my life, all my, much of my life, I've had people, well-meaning people, friends of my family, doctors, psychiatrists, lawyers, bosses, 
Well, let me say, I know you're having a tough time. I know how you feel. And you say, thank you. But you want to just say, get your hands off me. You don't know how I feel. Nobody knows how I feel anywhere I know. And the greatest gift you will get in AA is if you do these things and you throw yourself into it and continue to do so, not only do it like that guy did until 1974, but continue to do it, you discover, first of all, eventually some old fool will come over one day and say, I know how you feel. And you think, my God, he does know how I feel. And that's the first rope across the abyss. And then comes a little catwalk, and then comes a little road, and then comes an eight-lane superhighway eventually where there's a connection between them and me, and I'm not alone. But to this day, I have to remember that, because someday, I don't care how long you've been sober, I don't care how much you know, I don't care how well-known you are, how, how good a job you have, whatever it is, there are days in which it just creeps up and grabs you. There are just days after, I have a lot of wisdom, I pray a lot, I've come to believe in God, I believe a lot of things. But there are just days in life that are just come on midnight, there's no hope for this day. Just keep my mouth shut and try to get to a meeting and hope some son of a bitch doesn't say hello to me. <laughs> and eventually gets better. And that's a great that's a great fact for us. That's a great fact for us. We're we're not so different. Our book talks in great gold. But the most important thing is that last part of chapter five they read all the time. Everybody in the world knows it by heart, you know. You know, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. We claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. I must fight that perfectionism in me like I fight the desire to fail. And I, probably the greatest thing I take with me and of all these, these great topics we've had, all the great speakers, we're going to hear another great speaker this morning, great, dear ladies, my friend of mine from Miami. But of all the things we've heard this weekend, I've become more and more recently so caught up. In 1950, you know, at the first international convention, they had, a, they had a convention. One of the great reasons for that convention was to get people from various parts of the country so they would see they were not so different because people were getting drunk all over and they hated people. People in Los Angeles wouldn't correspond with the people in Akron. People in Chicago wouldn't correspond with the people in New York. People fighting, getting drunk. And they called this convention to try to get them to accept the 12 traditions. So we wouldn't have those, we would have gone down. So they had this, because everybody felt so different. And uh, Dr. Bob said, we hope we could get them together. So they realized they're not so different after all. But at that convention, they had a lot of things. They had, a, they had six young guys, each took two traditions and got up and tried to convince the crowd that the 12 traditions were not bad to accept them. And they eventually did, they were printed then. You gotta remember the 12 traditions, we sometimes blow them off. But they were accepted 15 years after AA started. And the only reason they accepted them is because AA was coming apart. But the, one of the great highlights of that convention, I still I have the tapes of that convention, was Dr. Bob, who was dying of cancer. And he, uh, they said, you shouldn't, probably wouldn't want to talk doctor. He said, oh yes, he said, I'm next to Bill, I've got the most sobriety in the world. He said, and I want these boys and girls to hear what I've got to say. And so they helped him with a podium at this meeting. Now the picture of that meeting, about the same number of people that were here. 
You know, AA was not a big thing. And he started off by welcoming them in. He said he was glad that some small thing he had done some years before maybe he'd help somebody stay sober. And he uh, wished they'd go back and tell the boys and girls at home that they weren't, you know, there was a place to live. And he said, well, I would indeed be remiss if I didn't discuss two or three things which I find to be of extreme interest and a great help to me. And he said, three little things that to me are, that's the Gettysburg Address of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've spoke all over the world. I've heard speakers all over the world. I've sat and talked to Bill Wilson for an hour. I've had a lot of exposure to a lot of wonderful things. But when you get down to the level of where the rubber meets the road, this is the spiritual, to me, the spiritual Gettysburg Address. He said, first, let's remember to keep our program simple. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to the scientists, but have nothing to do with our work here. When reduced to the last, our work here consists of love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. And secondly, he said, let us guard that erring member of the tongue and try to use it with kindness and understanding and love. And there isn't a person in this room this morning who doesn't know what that means because we've all cut people with our tongues we wish we hadn't. And lastly, he said, let us never forget to take the time to stop and talk to the man behind us, to tell him a little bit about AA, to give him a pat on the back when he needs it. Let us never reach that stage of smug indifference when we don't have time to take a new man to a meeting because none of us would be here if someone had done for us. And these are the things that gradually make you feel part of it. Then he said a few more things, and he sat down. He was dead shortly thereafter. But I, in my opinion, that's what, that's what all of this is about. When you do these things, your feelings of dim, difference diminish. All human beings are going to feel different. What we have to come to realize here, we are all different on the outside. We look different. We act different. We sound different. But at a certain level, we are the same. The alcoholic in Cape Town, South Africa that I talked to is like the alcoholic in Oslo, Norway, like the alcoholic in Sydney, Australia, like the alcoholic in Santa Ana. I, you don't understand. My case is different. Yes, we do understand, and your case is not so different. You come to find that out. But the way to bring this about, all of these excellent meetings this weekend, all of these marathons, devoted, dedicated persons getting up and doing the best they know how to com communicate what they found. Our speakers, our Al-Anon, everybody. And it all is aimed at one thing, for us to stay here, to partake of this, to share it with people yet to come. And it all boils down to this. Let's keep our program simple. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to scientists but have nothing to do with our work here. Our work here consists of love and service. Let us guard that erring member of the tongue and try to use it with kindness and love. Let us never be too busy to stop and talk to the man or woman behind us and tell them a little bit about AA. And I suppose tell them they're not so different and give them a pat on the back when they need it. And to uh, let us never reach that stage of smug indifference when I'm too busy to take a new man to a meeting because none of us would be here if someone hadn't done it for us. If we could leave here 
this afternoon and this noon with those thoughts in our mind. We're well on our way to a good week and not having to feel different for quite a while. And I hope it happens for all of us. Thank you. My name is Clancy Inslet. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I really enjoyed your talk, Vinny. I feel bad that I can't interpret it in a tie, but uh, 